0: Welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, or you might be listening to us on your local community radio station or on your podcast platform, Harbinger Media Network. My name is David Hostetter.
1: I'm Stephen Hostetter.
2: And I'm Lauren Latour. Thanks so much for joining us this week.
0: And Stephen will be interviewing Mr. Mitchell Beer, the champion of, uh, (laughs) of Canadian environmental reporting.
1: Of all environmental? Of energy reporting, potentially. Energy reporting. For sure, yes.
0: Uh, He is the publisher. He he runs the Energy Mix. He started the Energy Mix? He did start the Energy Mix. And Stefan will be speaking with him about the journey of him creating the Energy Mix. It's centrally Canadian, right? Yes. And And it just produces the highest volume of Canadian energy and environmental stories.
1: So he's not, they're not doing a lot of original reporting. They're mostly taking stories from other places and adding context, um, or going at, or explaining from the energy angle. So so they're not doing original reporting, but they're doing rewrites basically and m- giving people access to all of the energy stories in one place.
0: Yes, very impressive hub of of energy reporting.
2: And like we've said before, we use it all the time. So oh, yeah. shout out to the folks at the Energy Mix for making. I guess not just making our job easier, but like, yeah, achieving the goal of like collating, disseminating the necessary info as much as possible, because other like little ragtag teams like ours draw on their on their labor heavily.
0: And we're gonna do a bit of climate news. But first, I wanted to mention, I don't know what you guys think, but I think in order to be part of a contemporary progressive movement, in order to be part of a legitimate contemporary left every environmental organization should unequivocally support palestine don't you think i mean and not and not, not only like just like being like i don't think people should be killed but entirely not even buying into this terror rhetoric and should be hawkishly anti-empire in like in the in the in the language they use and the stances they take and i'm not seeing very many environmental organizations say anything about it
1: there certainly has been for the first week that it was quite quiet. We've begun to see groups coming out in the last few days with some uh, more interesting and important statements. The the one that I saw today uh, comes from the Oil Change International that began to sort of make the rounds, and it's I would say it's a very strong call for both a ceasefire and the end of occupation of Palestine. But it was, but it certainly has been. Quiet, And I've seen some groups in the States, especially be noted that there's, it might be, I saw someone, a reporter, Kate Arnoff today, ask around being like, I've seen Sunrise say anything, but has anyone, has anyone else? And I certainly think there's a, it's been quiet, but it's been good to see that, you know, 350 uh, put out a, a call recently supporting some things from, from Independent Jewish Voices Canada, um, from Canadians for Justice and Peace and from uh, justice for all Canada, all three of which calling for you know both the both the ceasefire and then end, but also the sort of follow- up to an end of the occupation, sort of the decolonial um, sort of follow- up to just you know, you can't just end the you just you just can't ask for a ceasefire given where we were before this was also horrendous. so. There's, there's more to be called before, and I, and I, but I think you're right. I think like you're seeing sort of the difference between what I would say some of the newer, more uh, radical uh, groups have sort of split from some of the more traditional ones in terms of how strongly they'll call for this.
2: Your use of the word decolonial there I think was important, Stefan, because I think there's a whole lot of organizations, especially in so-called Canada, who would consider themselves to be progressive, who would consider themselves to be organizations that like purport to have sort of like decolonial or like pro indigenous takes on things working towards upholding those values in various capacities within their work. But this is sort of an incident and an instance where it's like, okay, put your money where your mouth is now, because it's not a jump. It's just like, it's just a step in that same decolonial Anti oppressive logic. You know what I mean? And I think it's the type of thing where we're seeing these organizations unable to make that intellectual step. Um, And I think it is an indicator that in some cases, these organizations aren't, don't actually hold the progressive values that they would like to espouse. Anyway, I think one of the other things that's kind of interesting to me is that there are a lot of organizations who I'm sure if they were hearing this argument would say oh well we're working on our statements we just haven't got them out yet and it's like okay well i think the fact that it's taking you this long to work on your statement even if at the end of the day it is a good statement one that i that that we would um that we would say uh, adheres to and aligns with truly progressive decolonial values. The fact that it's taking this long for you to get buy-in from all of the folks within your organization or your network or whatever that it needs to get buy-in from, I think is, is again, still an indicator of kind of a a problematic trend um, that we're able to adopt language of, of decolonialism and decoloniality when it's within a so-called Canadian context. And there's like, the concept has been like socialized and there's buy-in for it, at least on like a very, like on the surface level. And that I think when, when you scratch the surface of, of, of that sort of like, um, pledge to decolonialism with, with an issue like this, with what's going down in, in, in Gaza. Yeah. I think it's an indicator that maybe these values that a lot of so-called Canadians, um, hold aren't, aren't actually all that deep-seated
0: but i think also we're just weirdly propagandized into into a certain kind of language which which implicitly supports uh like the murderous empire um like even this heated article uh from emily atkin and they they've i mean she's made like a, a got a great following doing climate reporting doing a climate newsletter and actually has gotten like you know enough to sustain it professionally but e- even her article on this issue says Israel-Hamas war. She's calling it a war rather than a genocidal apartheid state, and she's implying that there's some sort of symmetry of power between Hamas, the terrorists, and Israel, uh, the warring state. And, And she uses the word terrorism throughout the whole thing as if the war on terror were not just the empire fighting whoever they say are bad. And so even important climate reporting from an outlet like her is still using the rhetoric of terror to describe Arab enemies of the United States, which is just strange and unnecessary. And I, I don't I don't know exactly why. perhaps because she wants to be like legitimate, like seem like a legitimate reporter and therefore not being like, I don't know, some sort of communist anti America person. I don't know.
2: I think I think potentially that. I think it's like like you said, it's it's potentially wanting to like save a version of face amongst a more liberal audience lowercase liberal audience. Um, But I think I think some of it's also an indicator that we are so dyed in the wool when it comes to this, that it's really, really hard to think of these parties as anything other than 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 what CNN would tell us they are.
1: The way that this ties into sort of the rest of the conversation that we'll be having, um, you know, is is really about whether or not and how the progressive wing of the environmental movement Will accept the concept of legitimacy of indigenous voices throughout the world. Period. You know, like the one of the places that we're most concerned about some of the conversations around the green transition is what it means for, say, indigenous folks in the global south dealing with mining, uh, or these types of things. You know, we'll talk. We we'll, don't we'll have a ton of time. But we'll talk a little bit about that in the in the in the section next about how we have to make sure that. Th- the work that we are doing in the transition itself does not sort of recreate the same technocratic colonial state that we currently live in, and instead focus on actually finding a way to work with the communities that that are being impacted by these, you know, the need for lithium or, or whatever.
2: We can look back in fairly recent history, and there was another apartheid state and another revolutionary party that rose up out of that apartheid state was labeled a party of terrorists. And then then, once the the apartheid state fell, then rose to power and prominence and became like a legitimate party leader um, of of, like once the apartheid state had fallen. And like that was Nelson Mandela's African National Congress Party back in under in, in apartheid South Africa, the African National Congress was labeled a terrorist body. Nelson Mandela was imprisoned for years and labeled a terrorist. And that given sort of like, I don't know, historical retrospect like it under under the, the sort of the the lens of historical retrospect nope i don't i don't think anybody anymore would label the national african congress a terrorist party um they view them as a legitimate party they they view nelson mandela not as a terrorist but as a freedom fighter as he very much was um and I, I sort of just like that's i think that's important framing to keep in mind as we go about throwing around terms like terrorist trying to trying to figure out Um, and understand what our stances are um, and what it is we're advocating for as politically active people based in a colonial state ourselves.
0: some climate news before Stefan goes to Mitchell Beer of the Energy Mix, talk about his journey creating that information hub. So Det Norsky Veritas, or DNV, uh, which started as a Norwegian marine insurance group, why am I mentioning this, and now issues the energy transition outlook, is currently predicting a 2.2 degrees Celsius rise in global temperatures by 2100.
1: Yeah, I I believe we've covered this particular story or particular organization before. Like, I think they do very deep research on this. And so I think they're like one of the leaders people sort of base themselves off of. And so, yeah, I mean, 2.2 degrees by, by 2100 is a little scary, although, you know, obviously I imagine this is being framed as slightly better news than it was previously. Like, we're not going to see Runaway 5 by 2100, and I guess that's positive, but... I mean 2.2 yeah. 2 is not great everyone that I mean and, 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 is still bad
0: and even if and even if it is kept to that like what are we what are we clinging to like is Canada still shipping shipping a bunch of weapons to Israel in 2100 like are we still are we still supporting global war just to keep ourselves in this little bubble of of slightly less dangerous weather I don't
2: know I uh, yes that is almost definitely what 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 the military is planning to do, Hondo Pete.
0: A carbon map published by the New York Times last year shows the carbon emissions in and around major U.S. cities. It shows that households in more densely populated areas emit a lot less carbon pollution than households in more sparsely populated places.
1: What's interesting here, really, is that the need to build things, and there's a very good Article written by, or sorry, there's a very good conversation between the new head, North American head of 350.org um, and a on the Volts podcast, which is with a, I believe a guy named David Roberts, and he was talking about the shift that 350 has tr- been trying to do, and we talk about it a little bit in the Mitchell Beer conversation as well. And from or the push coming from the global South and sort of from from other areas um, to 350.org as an na- international organization has been to push them to fight for building things and building solutions rather than blocking things because the need to build new things right now is so high. And so one of the things that's important here is the fact that, you know, with this carbon map um, and with the studies that are in here, they show that like building really dense neighborhoods is actually maybe the most the biggest impact cities can have on carbon but most often you when you ask them what their what their climate plans are they're going to say it's things like retrofits or or reducing you know or encouraging cycling and stuff like that which are good but like most of the time the ways to change the you know the, the world is to build something different and so so much of what we need to do next little bit is about focusing on the good that we can build rather than the bad that we're going to have to block. And so that, 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 that's just a, a conversation that we can have later, but is highlighted by this particular one, because like cities don't think of often, they're not going to talk about their housing policy as their climate policy, but more than anything, it likely would have the biggest impact
2: actually think that would be a really interesting conversation for us to have at some point is maybe talking to somebody within the so-called Canada based 350 team because yeah that shift to a solutions based campaign um i think is really interesting especially when we are only just seeing from a lot of other internationally focused organizations that shift towards phase out language so i feel like just from like i don't know a movement dynamics um standpoint that could be an interesting not debate but but kind of conversation for us to have is like which are we advocating for solutions or phase out both one over the other how much anyway just kind of want to put put a pin in that for later at some point
0: so what Stefan was saying just reminded me of a really annoying exchange. I had, I don't know when, but (laughs) this, this dude, it was, maybe it was, maybe it was one of our sort of like public outreach, like tabling Green Society campaign tabling things. I don't know. But someone sort of scoffed at me rather rudely suggesting that because I lived in a city, I couldn't possibly care about the, be it, be sustainable or environmental and only environmental people live in the country. And it's like, you're actually you have to you actually have to emit by design so much more pollution in order to live in the country, and so it's just one of those things where it's like counterintuitively, the people in the grime are not the ones creating the grime.
1: No, yeah, exactly.
0: Um, so Joe Biden is spending seven billion dollars to create seven clean hydrogen hubs in the United States. Canary Media writes, "Quote that money won't be all spent at once. Uh, most will." be released only after each hub has met key design and viability milestones and it's possible that some hubs may not advance to full scale construction and operation but if they do come to fruition they're expected to lead more than 40 billion dollars in lead to more than 40 billion dollars in follow-on investment from the companies involved and this is like seven billion dollars this guy didn't this guy just approve 800 billion dollars for military and like so much of that is going to like Ukraine. And so, and so here he goes, he's like meeting out $7 billion over who knows how many years in order to like coax, coax more private investment. It's just like, there's, it's, it's, it's crazy. The grip that weapons corporations have, nobody questions it. And like, we're supposed to cheer on this little, this little green coaxing thing here. Um, Finally, a report published in Science Direct by the journal Joule is showing that AI-powered Google searches might be using 30 times as much electricity as regular Google searches. The study reads, quote, the worst case scenario suggests Google's AI alone could consume as much electricity as a country such as Ireland which is a significant increase compared to its historical AI-related energy consumption. However, this scenario assumes full-scale AI adoption utilizing current hardware and software, which is unlikely to happen rapidly. So, There's a lot of unknowns in this story, but they're just saying like AI could end up reusing a ton of electricity.
1: Which is the same as, you know, Bitcoin, which is the same as, you know, the the point of both these stories, honestly, for me, was that the amount of investment that we're going to see in, quote unquote, the future, which is like, you know, whether or not these clean hydrogen hubs are end up being significant reductions of carbon is pretty open and unsure. Um, And the fact that we sort of see AI as somehow part of the future, despite it's somewhat limited current use in real functional things. Like, I know there's many things that it's currently being aided, that aided by and there might be some future there. Yeah. Honestly, it at least has more obvious usage than Bitcoin does, for example. But like we are creating these massive energy sucks instead of just doing like, the simple things that we need to rebuild our actual world, you know, like there's so much sh- stuff we need to be doing, and so much energy would need to go into, say, retrofits and things like that, that to <laughs> that to fundamentally decide instead we should be, you know, creating an uh, another Ireland of energy use for unsure usage or you know however much bitcoin is which i think is even more than that you know like we are creating these new systems that do not address the very hard cost and in the world problems that we are seeing and that to me is the thing that i sort of in the conversation that maybe be lower we gonna have in the future about 350 shift that this is part of it right it's like what we are building is not solving the problem, and yet it's taking a ton of energy, even at a time when we know we drastically need to shift our energy consumption and how we're using it. And still, we're making our job harder for ourselves while ignoring the sort of immediate work we should get done. And that, to me, is a bit of a, we're falling down the sort of technocratic love affair.
2: Yeah, and I think just sort of to hammer home on that, something I wanted to sort of plug into this conversation about the the hydrogen hubs is that I think it's something like when I was reading it, Um, two thirds of the funding for those hydrogen hubs is going towards green hydrogen and about one third to blue hydrogen. And I know we've had this explainer before, but just in case listeners sort of are still wrapping their brains around it. Green hydrogen is hydrogen that is from, um, like, uh, renewable energy electrolysis. Um, if you ask me to explain what that means, I would tell you to go away because I can't. Um, but, uh, (laughs) but blue hydrogen is from the, um, is 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 sourced from natural gas that has then gone through carbon capture processes. So there's a, a a really good argument to be made, and and that is being made by by people who are smarter than I am. That subsidies for blue hydrogen, which is the renewable, which is the natural gas one, um, are in a lot of ways kind of just a subsidy for the oil and gas industry, um, and kind of prove only to prop it up even longer. Um, because um, like we know, like carbon capture storage technology is is kind of like not not totally disproven all the time, especially when it's like direct air capture, but like it's 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 dubious. It's hard to scale up. Um, and ultimately, a lot of this money is going into the hands of, of corporations like Exxon Mobil in order to allow them to continue with their natural gas um, production projects. <laughs> um, so unfortunately, it's like, yes, seven billion going towards hydrogen hubs in some ways, fantastic. In some ways, we still need to double check the math at the end of the day, because if it's going towards blue hydrogen, it's, it's questionable about how much good it's actually doing versus if it's just functioning as a subsidy to the oil and gas industry. So happy Wednesday. I guess happy Friday if you're listening.
1: My name is Stephen Hostetter, and I am here with Mitchell Beer, the publisher of The Energy Mix. Thanks so much for being here.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Jeff.
1: And so The Energy Mix, for those who aren't in the deep in the energy world, is an incredibly valuable resource for all of us who are trying to keep up with all the changing impacts and all the changing things. I I we on the show have referenced it many times, and so folks will probably recognize it from that. But it is truly an amazing resource that you've built up. And so I'd love to sort of get a bit of time to get to know sort of you and then also the energy mix itself and what we are sort of imagining going. So if we can start by way of introduction, how did you personally get involved in, I mean, I, I would say environmentalism normally, but climate, energy, and the whole shebang?
3: Just by coincidence and dumb luck, Truly. I started my career for most practical purposes at a paper called Canadian Renewable Energy News. We had put out our first edition in October 1977. So I've been around the, the what we now call the renewable energy or clean energy space since then, climate change since 1997. But the dumb luck part is that in 1977, I was trying to start a career as a freelancer. I dropped in on my former student newspaper at Carleton University and happened to see this poster on the wall, you know, with this really pretentious old English type for the name of the paper, For most people call the masted, it's actually the flag. And, you know, it said they were looking for freelancers. And I can remember thinking, oh, yeah, sure, solar power, that's ever going to work. Well, maybe they'll pay their bills before they go bankrupt. Right. And as a freelancer, I thought, well, you know, it's a gig, Sure. Before talking about it as a geek was common language. Three and a half years later, after having just the honor of a lifetime you know, to spend my time learning on the job, learning by doing, learning about probably 30 or 40 separate and distinct renewable energy and energy efficiency technologies and processes, learning the politics, learning the economics, starting to learn the contrast with fossil fuels and in those days, much more directly up against nuclear energy as well. I knew what Work I was built to do, you know, and I hadn't had the opportunity to stay in the field nonstop, but that was the beginning.
1: Amazing. And so from there, obviously, at some point, you decided that there wasn't enough, you know, news coverage of energy policy and energy issues in Canada, or at least I can presume that's what led you to start the energy mix. But maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong. What led you to start the energy mix?
3: Well, by 2014, I'd been following the field, following the space for many years, not working directly in the States because there were not years, but decades of really, really lean times for energy efficiency, for renewable energy, just the decades of dismissal and denial around climate change. So over those years, I was doing other work, but doing my best to keep my hand in just to, you know, try to create assignments or find projects where I could just, just try to stay read in to one degree or another. I did find more of a consistent pathway back into the climate space around 2011, 2012. And then by 2014, realized that, and this was about a year and a half before the Paris Climate Conference, there was already way more content than anybody had time to keep track of. There was way more happening than anybody, you know, could get a handle on. And a lot of it was in separate Disciplines or areas of interest that needed to be brought together if we were going to get to solutions. So people focusing on pipeline and anti-fossil fuel fights probably didn't have time to read in on renewable energy. Renewable energy people probably, and actually I saw a couple of <laughs> direct examples of this, didn't have time to quite get it right. You know about the impact of of you know hydraulic fracking, you know natural gas fracking, and, and so many other overlaps and and sort of missed connections not because anybody was wrong, but just because there was too much stuff. So we figured initially that if all we could do was amp up our own search, read in more carefully, and just write short summaries of what was already out there, you know, that that consolidating might be a contribution. You know, and at that point, as a former journalist, I'm just so thrilled to be back in the profession. But at the time, as... (laughs) you know, sort of as a once upon a time, I knew that the rewrite desk is one of the easiest jobs in news. So we weren't producing any original content at that point. We were just trying to bring together the best of the best. Then we gradually started having more analysis, more original coverage, more long form as the mix grew and developed. But even in 2014, it was just such a, an information gap. In some small way we want to try to help though
0: yeah
1: for sure I mean it, it it can be seen everywhere right every time honestly I see a general journalist talk about climate change almost always' begging my head against some part of it because there is just so much to know that it's very easy to fall into mistakes because that has become sort of generalized thought like that's people have decided that that is what is true now and they haven't done the extra digging to know if the situation has changed or if the topics are different. You know, like how long were people still going on about how renewables were expensive even after the price of renewables actually decreased, right? You still hear that today, despite study after study after study to study showing that wind and solar in some places are the cheapest possible new energy. I remember a study a couple of years ago, maybe it was a year ago, that said that in some places, new solar was cheaper than just maintaining coal. So like building something new entirely had surpassed in price point the idea of just maintaining a coal plant still to this day.
3: Yeah, and And, and, and what we're seeing more recently is that solar plus storage or wind plus storage right now today already is cheaper than gas plants in Alberta or Ontario and that over the next I think the reference point was 2035, it might have been 2030 solar is on track to fall another 40% while gas is on track for who the hell knows, you know, what you could bet from gas is such crazy volatility and pricing and that's what they would even factoring in things like Putin's war in the Ukraine. And that means, you know, anybody who's depending on a steady, affordable energy supply had better not be thinking gas. And that I mean, that's such a great example of just one of so many climate messages that we can get to without using any of our standard C words like climate and carbon and crisis. The upfront issue with gas is that if I want to be really sure as a household that I'm going to be able to stop having to choose between food and fuel, let's make sure that first of all, I can predict my fuel costs, which gas doesn't deliver. And then secondly, let's make sure I minimize my consumption, which an energy retrofit does deliver.
1: Yeah, for sure. And That conversation and those types of things are exactly where you sort of see the climate movement moving. You know, I recently listened to an interesting podcast with the the North American head of 350.org who was talking about how they as a organization were being pushed and sort of following actual folks from the global south most commonly in terms of having to be about building things and about finding ways to actually change the world rather than sort of being so specifically against fighting. And that's something that's happened from like a a very classic, you know, environmental org that 350 is that, you know, chop made its teeth off fighting pipelines.
3: Well, sure, exactly. 350 was built around fighting Keystone and and, and saying no to infrastructure projects. And Bill McKibben, among others, has been writing about this really interesting cultural shift. And by interesting, I mean really difficult. For movements and for a lot of movement people where we, they, all of us have been used to saying no to stuff that needs to be said no to. And yet now the very same or similar permitting and approval processes that are a legitimate weapon for democratic opposition to a pipeline end up becoming a really destructive barrier to something like an offshore wind farm that can be manipulated, for example by you know actual or almost conspiracy theorists who are telling us oh yeah it's the wind turbines that are killing whales off the coast of the united states not ship strikes on whales that are being driven closer to the coast by ocean warming oh no no but it's the wind turbine they haven't been built yet yeah but it's the wind turbine you know so 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 these processes that have served very well to slow down and stop stuff that needs to be slowed down and stopped as a community. You know, there's a a, a real need to turn around and and embrace the stuff that we can say yes to with all due caution, you know, and making sure that communities and ecosystems are fine, but still getting this stuff built because communities and ecosystems won't be fine in any way if it doesn't get built.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, same thing is can be said about high-speed rail, you know, all these things that infrastructure we need. It's all the same fight, fight, right? It's like you've created these systems where, again often for very good reasons to stop very destructive things can then be turned around and be used to prevent very much needed infrastructure for a different sure, world. Sure. And we just presume that the highways are fine because they already, they already there, but heaven forbid we give anyone an alternative.
3: Sure. Sure. And, and that's not to say that it's impossible or unimaginable for, for proponents to get out there trying to do the right thing wrong. Right. and, and, an interesting issue that we I, I hope every day that we're, we 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 deal with consistently. You know, we always say as a news outlet that, that we'll follow the evidence and tell the story a fear or a favor. Well, and, and that's the basic bottom line that any reader or listener should have to be able to count on any news outlet to deliver, unless it's Fox or Post Media, and in that case, you get what you get. But about a year ago, we ran into a story in Nova Scotia where. You know, frankly, in terms of getting this stuff built and on the ground, I wanted so much for it to plant the other way, but that didn't mean it was going to. It's a project that I think has sorted out some of the issues since. But the, the pitch was, we're going to build a green hydrogen plant in Nova Scotia. We're going to export hydrogen, export ammonia, I think it was, to Germany, which needs it because of Putin's war. And it's going to be green from the outset. Well, it turned out that one way or the other, it was not. Nova Scotia is a province that is scrambling to get off coal by 2030, the federally mandated deadline. And the modeling says that there is enough renewable energy to go around if They can get heat pumps in place to reduce demand. But like anywhere else, they can do it, but it's going it to be a challenge. It's going to take a lot of hard work. And if some other source of demand for that renewable energy comes along, one of two things is going to happen. Either the wind turbines won't get in place in time, in which case it will be powered by coal, or else the wind turbines will get in place, but now will not be available to the provincial grid, which means that coal might well be needed somewhere else. So either way, this green hydrogen plant is about as carbon intensive as any hydrogen production can get. And of course, we told the story. You know, and, and part of it was a case, I thought at the time, of really good intentions that weren't supported once you sweated the details. And those details matter because we're no longer just at the level of what we need to do. We're no longer at the level of we've got this 2050 target or we're serious. We have this 2030 target. Everyone has to dig down into, OK, how do we actually deliver on this? And those details, everything depends on them. Yeah, And we have to, we have to be here to follow that and dig deep enough into a story to be able to, to telegraph it. Properly.
1: No, yeah, for sure. It's, it's amazing how intertwined so much of this becomes and how quickly without the right details you can lose everything, you know, like yeah. so often you get conversations around, you know, energy grids and power grids where they aren't really addressing the, transmission lines that are needed or these other things that sort of change things. And it's like, okay, well, you can have these visions, like you can have all these mandates and stuff, but if you're not pressuring the utilities to build the transmission lines to make a more distributed energy system more possible, for example, you're going to end up with having to recreate the same stuff, you know, like because you haven't even given yourself the possibility of being different. And then you act as like, oh, that's because solar doesn't work. It's like, no, it's because our systems are not designed to let these things work. And it requires a much more significant change to get us that's to right. places where it could that's work.
3: Right. That's right. And don't forget, I mean, these are systems that have been around for a long time in Ontario for more than 100 years. And yes, it is... There's absolutely, definitely a dimension of pressuring utilities. There's also a dimension that we're trying to work very hard on in some of our our planning and publishing and and and, and uh, audience outreach. There's a dimension of finding the people within that sector. In this case, within utilities, but apply it applies elsewhere too. People within that sector, within that industry, who want to make the change, who are looking for for the information they need, either to guide their own work. Or to help them make the case to others in-house. You know, and, and that not to say, no, let's just, you know, go inside and not be putting on pressure from the outside, but I do think it's very much an inside-outside issue. I'm saying this because, as it happens, if we stay on schedule, we're literally a week away from launching a feature digest that is specifically directed to heat and power to the utility sector, and combining heat with power we were originally calling this clean electricity. But there's so much focus now on gas heat, you know, and the gas industry is trying so hard to grab that market for the next 20 or 30 years, even though they're by no means the best option, best alternative. But I think we need to be doing the whole line about, you know, all of it, everything all at once, One part of what we need to be doing is focusing into the really granular details within these industries and sectors, like utilities, like cities and communities, like finance and discover where those practical barriers are. And as a publication, we're working with the theory, we'll see if we can prove it, that if we can help those practitioners maximize their impact, that's how we maximize ours. And, you know, we'll keep you posted on how that's going. It's still a hypothesis.
1: Yeah, I mean, fascinating, and and I'd love to hear more. And so the does us back a little bit to the goals of the energy mix. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about I don't know if, I don't know if you have founding principles or, or sort of what guides your work.
3: Well, the goal has always been to you know make whatever difference as much difference as we can. What we've been on, specifically on climate and on the energy transition, we've we've learned through the work, obviously, that climate is so much more than just energy. But as the name implies, we began, started out coming from the energy space into into climate. But what we're really clear about is that, and this guides a lot of our priorities and a lot of the specific choices and decisions that we make, we're not here to build a publishing empire, first of all. Our goal is to work ourselves out of a job by 2035. And that's on the assumption that if by 2035, there's still a need for the energy mix then something's going wrong with the climate transition. You know, and oh, yeah. I don't doubt. I'm looking forward to finding out what it'll be by 2035. There'll be lots else for us to do, but I'm hoping this kind of publication won't be needed, that will be redundant. So, what we are, I mean, basically, our, our mission is faster, deeper carbon cuts to leave no one behind. You know, I don't know that we've explicitly written that down anywhere, but we've set it 20. And that means trying to find whatever pathways we can where content can help drive. Decisions and action and result. It's as simple and really as complicated as that.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's amazing how when you get a simple idea, and once you, if you hold yourself to that and put it into practice, it suddenly becomes drastically more complicated because the world is a complicated. Oh, God, place. Yeah. oh, yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and every aspect of this transition. Right has been exactly that. Some of it has been, you know, when Exxon and the rest of the fossil industry put hundreds of millions of dollars into climate denial. Yeah, that's going to complicate things. But a lot of it is just what you were saying before. You know, how does a system that started it with centralized utility, you know, with the first grid grid hydro plant that if I remember correctly was was in 1913, right? How does that suddenly... In institutional terms overnight convert over to distributed energy systems that are more resilient, that cost less, that empower all of that good stuff. When that's never been the mandate until now, so of course it's more complicated, yeah. You know, no. and, and, and for us, I mean, you know, I'll I trust you'll cut this if it's too much inside baseball, but in publishing, there's at least a sort of a first line tacit assumption that you're doing well if your web numbers are going up. You know, you're getting more and more hits on the site. More people are coming to the site. That's got to be a good thing, right? Well, you know, unless we somehow crash to zero tomorrow, I think we're probably in a record year this year for web hits. But really, my reaction to that is, so what? You know, if we're here to build a publishing empire, great. Celebrate. If we're here to have an impact on climate change, that metric only matters. If anybody can show me that there is a direct provable line between somebody coming to the Energy Makes website and emissions going down. And I wish it were true, but I hope I'll never be delusional enough to think it is. So we're still, frankly, sorting out what are the interim steps to say, okay, so great. Somebody comes to our site. Somebody sees our content without even coming to our site, which is fine. But how does that actually move things, change things? We're working on that.
1: Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating question. I mean, whatever, I work in the impact sort of space, quote unquote, in my day job. And so I know how nearly impossible it is to get even more straightforward ways to yeah. actually count yeah. ca- count carbon being reduced, even for companies that do much more specific things than than news. But- the Publishing, like what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I mean, I, I want to go quickly back to one thing you said there before sort of going moving on, which is a thing I'm fascinated about is how even if everyone agreed in the world that we had to take climate change seriously and do this work, it would still be so hard. Like, it would still be a monumental effort if you weren't constantly infighting with everyone and all the other ingrained opinions, right? Like, to decarbonize Canada would truly require a Herculean effort even if everyone just said yes and said, throw a bunch of money at it, right? Like what does it look like to create a say high speed rail network that covers this entire country, or at least enough of this country that then you could justify some amount of flights to say more Northern or more remote communities, for example, you know, what does it look like to do all of the other retrofits that would, that are, would take a generational like effort. It province to province, to promise to do it's, it's such a big job and so complicated that like the internal fights are one thing, but you're right. It's just the work itself. The engineering problems alone are, yeah. are difficult.
3: Well, I think there are, I think there are a couple of issues there if I can remember them all at once. One is, and I'm going to channel Seth Fine whose climate emergency unit has been, been working out of BC on, on exactly this aspect of the issue that It is not unprecedented, not even slightly in Canadian history that we have seen a big, overwhelming, overarching existential challenge and risen to that challenge. And that challenge was the Second World War. Seth Book is about what happened when the country finally decided to mobilize. You know, what it looked like when, as he says, we decided to treat it like a damn emergency to give it the resources and give it the support that we needed to win, you know? And that's not to say that it was easy, but it was doable. There was a scale up, there was a mobilization that, sure, you know, given the existential threat that we're facing now, we have the history and the precedent to show how to do it. Another piece is, yes, there are engineering challenges. A lot of them are really simple challenges, you know, so that, or let's say challenges that are simple compared to the engineering and all other aspects of keeping a high-speed at work in place. I'm speaking to you from not too far away from an LRT system in Ottawa, that has been much more of a multi-year engineering challenge than it ever should have been. But not all aspects of it are as fundamentally challenging as something like high-speed rail. And that points toward the other point, and that is that it looks like more of a challenge when you start from the assumption that the transition is about loss and pain. You know, okay, fine, we have to do this, but it's going to be like taking our vaccine. I know I'm going to be down for two days afterwards, but okay, fine, I guess I have to do this. And by the way, get your booster, everybody, this fall, you need to for both COVID and flu. If we assume that the things we need to do are gonna be a sacrifice, then I guarantee we'll prove that by the way we do it. But what if so much of this is about opportunity and gain, not loss and pain? You know, It's about jobs. It's about job creation. It's about business development. It's about economic development. It's about no longer anybody ever having to choose between food and fuel. It's about people In the suburbs uh being able to stay home two days a week so that they don't have to commute as much and not because they're cutting their tailpipe emissions but because on those two days they can be sure of being available at 4 p.m that afternoon for their daughter's soccer game at the only moment in the known history of the universe when she's going to be nine years old which is going to be so much more important to any parent than their tailpipe emissions but it still cuts their emissions okay so all of these Things that we get back by doing things that, oh, also, by the way, cut carbon. That's where the opportunity is. And, and you know, there, there, there are. once you start thinking that way, there are countless iterations of it, many more than you have time for. And it doesn't mean, it still doesn't mean it's institutionally easy. It still doesn't mean that it's a walk in the park for people or households or communities But it's a hell of a lot better than starting out from the assumption that every piece of it is gonna hurt when in fact it gives us the stops we already know or think we might need. One example is that there has been such wild and crazy manufactured controversy lately around the idea, the idea of 15-minute communities, 15-minute neighborhoods. It's a really simple idea that basically says most of the amenities that you need will be within a 15-minute walk, bike, ride transit commute, transit will be better. It's a great way to reduce sprawl, reduce the associated costs, reduce the associated emissions. Until some of the same conspiracy theorists who were behind the convoy occupation at Ottawa last year come along and say, they're putting us in ghettos. The barbed wire is already on order. And please, please don't clip that out out of context because it is every manner of ridiculous, there's there's zero evidence for it, just paranoia and conspiracy theories. And yet in some parts of the country, 15 minute communities are a whole lot more complicated and parts of some other countries as well. It's all opportunity. Mm -hmm. We lived in a neighborhood for so long where there was so much to love about it, but the nearest grocery store was a pharmacy with a food section, the second nearest grocery store. With a pharmacy, for, with a food section. We could get to transit, but only after walking across an awful bridge that didn't feel safe. And nearly a decade ago, we moved to a place where we had 67 bus routes right on the corner. When it works, the LRT is just a couple of blocks away, as I said. It usually works these days, mostly. All kinds of the stuff you just need day to day along the street. And I can remember for the first time, for the first year or so after we moved here, every time I went out, I think everyone should have this. We're so incredibly lucky, and it wasn't rocket science. We just lucked into it. Everybody should have this. It should be given. Why can't we do this? And then I started hearing that people call that a 15-minute neighborhood. Yeah, it's painful. Sure, I feel persecuted. No. <laughs> it's awesome. And it's a climate solution without getting tied down and having to justify any of our usual C words. Mm-hmm. We just get it done. And, and the carbon cuts follow on things that make life better.
1: Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I mean, I could go on to the city, but we are running out of time. So instead, I will ask you how folks can find the Energy Mix, follow your work, and and learn more.
3: Okay, thank you. In a couple of different places, our main website is theenergymix.com. And there you will find our regular digest, our weekly Cities and Communities feature digest, and beginning soon, our heat and power feature digest. We also publish a weekly opinion piece called the Energy Mix Weekender. It's on Substack. It's a longer URL, so I'm not going to try it here. But if you Google search the Energy Mix Weekender, you'll find it.
1: Amazing. Well. It is our tradition to give our guests a last word of the show. So in a second, I'll throw back to you to sort of hammer home anything that you wish people across the country would know more. But before I do, just want to say thank you so much. This has been Mitchell Beer, the publisher of The Energy Mix. Really appreciate your time. And yeah, any last thoughts?
3: I guess the last thought that I would want to leave is that really both things are true. Yes, we are in a crisis, we're in an existential crisis, it's scary, the clock is ticking, and the solutions are real, they're practical, they're affordable, they're ready for prime time, we know what to do, we know how to get it done. And we're in a moment when both halves of that story are accelerating fast enough that it's hard to keep track. But on one hand, yeah, we're seeing all climate impacts. How can anybody stay there optimistic and hopeful You know, when we come out of the summer that we've just had, a couple of years that we've just had, but yet, yes, I will tell you that I'm optimistic and hopeful, not that we have any guarantees, but that we have a really good shot of winning this because the opportunities are so obvious. And I think it's so important that both of those have the the story, have to be in the conversation, have to keep completing each other, that yes, the urgency drives the solution, And the solutions are what can and should give us hope because the only guarantee we have, you know, and yeah, this is the battle of our lifetimes and the only guarantee we have of losing this battle is if we give in to climate despair and take on the assumption that the battle is already lost. You know, if we keep with the solutions, well, of course, you know, how can you not see what's going on around us? If we keep with those solutions, keep looking at how to promote it, advocate for it, embody it, make it happen, and make sure our institutions make it happen, we do have a really good shot awaiting this.